Hi, my name is Kaylin. I've been coming to church with my family for six years. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 2, 13 through 23. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and search for the child. I mean, sorry. For Herod is about to search for the child and kill, to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken through the Lord, through the, through the prophet, might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. And then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. <laughs> Great job, Kaylin. Great job. How awesome is that to hear out of the mouth of babes and children, right? <laughs> the word of God being proclaimed. All right, I got to clear some things out here because we got places to go. And we're going to be in that chapter this morning, uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 13 through 23. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to, to leave those open because we'll be moving our way through that. Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife, uh, Adrian and I, Adrian plays the drums. I don't know if you know that was my wife up here, uh, hitting things, getting out all of that aggression and, and anger. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, our drummer, my wife, and I, we purchased a home about two years ago or so, three years ago. She's the one who's good with dates, too. Um, about three years ago, and that's the typical way of phrasing it, right? Me, me and my wife, we bought a house. Um, but the truth is, all we actually did was agree to pay the owner of the house, the mortgage company, uh, for 30 years, a set price, with the hope that we'll still be alive in 30 years and we can actually own that home at some point in time. Um, only after those 30 years of payment will we actually own it. Uh, and so there's a sense in which we did buy a house. We started that process. We went down, we signed a, a stack of papers, right? And basically signed our life away. Um, 
There's a sense in which we did buy a house and there's also another sense in which we're buying a house. We make those payments on a monthly basis. And then there's still another sense in which we will finally own that home or buy that home in the future, right? Well, one of Matthew's goals as he sets out in the gospel according to Matthew is uh, that we, he wants to establish for us and for his, his audience uh, that, the, that Jesus is holding, and sorry, my watch is beeping again, so let's do that again. <laughs> uh, that Jesus, is, Jesus holds the credentials of Messiah. He meets all the requirements of Messiah. Uh, that he, he wants his reader to be entirely convinced that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the ultimate anointed one who would not just represent the life and spirit of God, not just represent it, but would actually be the life and spirit of God among us, God with us. And how does he demonstrate that? Well, he, he does it by connecting Jesus to Old Testament prophecies regarding this coming Messiah. And that's what he's doing throughout, and we've seen a few of those already. We'll see a few of those today. He's showing uh, definitively how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. And it would, it would probably be profitable for us to talk a little bit about what fulfill means in biblical terms. Uh, the word in Matthew for fulfill, it means, uh, kind of has a range of meanings, but within that is to come to an end, to make full or finish, to make complete, or to give final meaning to. And all of those have something to say about what it means to fulfill the prophecies and scriptures of old as it relates to Jesus. See, Jesus will at times, he'll draw in prophecies from the Old Testament that are direct verbal predictions. This will happen, and then it happens, and boom, see, it happened. But there are other times where he'll connect prophetic words or writings in the Old Testament and make them into a sort of type, or what they call typological uh, these are texts in the Old Testament that speak about maybe an actual event or a thing or a person, but they're also a part of establishing and communicating a type of event, a type of thing, or a type of person. Uh, one that is fulfilled or completed or in which the fullness of its meaning comes to be seen in Jesus Christ. So let, let me give you an example. So we, we might see these, these types replay a few times even in Old Testament scripture. And, and one example is Moses. Moses was a real person. Moses existed. Moses had a life and his story is recorded in the Bible in Exodus. And you can read about it, uh, this particular story at the beginning of his life where an evil Pharaoh, uh, well, Moses is gonna need saving from an evil Pharaoh. And that's in Exodus one and two. You, you can turn there if you want or just write that down. See, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of the land in Egypt, he's scared because these Israelites who first came to Egypt to escape a famine under one Pharaoh's rule with the help of Joseph, the family of Israel came to live in Egypt to escape. Well, they've been living there for a while now, many hundreds of years. And now a new Pharaoh is in order and the Israelites have multiplied substantially. And they're multiplying in, in number. And the Pharaoh, man, he's afraid. He's afraid that these Israelites, they're going to rise up. They're going to they're gonna be a slave rebellion. And they're going to overthrow him or worse, leave Egypt. And then all of his workers will be gone. So he commands the Hebrew midwives, 
that if an Israelite woman gives birth to a son, they are to kill it as soon as it's born. As soon as it's born, as soon as it's delivered, kill it. But because of the courage of those Hebrew midwives, they don't listen to Pharaoh. And as a result, Moses is born. Moses enters this world as a young baby. And so Pharaoh recognizes they're still multiplying. These midwives, these midwives have a good cover story. Like they're like, these Hebrew women, man, they, they pop that baby out like nothing. We can't even get there in time. There's babies flying everywhere, right? So Pharaoh's like, you know, he gets wise to it. And he says, all right, fine. I command all of my people, all the people of Egypt, if you see a young Israelite boy, throw him into the Nile. Throw him into the Nile and drown him. But God saves Moses. See, when his mom, his mom hides him for three months. That, that'd be tough, hiding a, you know, a three-month, you know, three month, up to three-month-old baby somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> that'd be tough, hiding a three-month-old baby, but, but she can't hide him anymore at, at some point. And so what she does is she builds him a little a boat, what we might call an ark. She builds him an ark. And she's gonna place Moses into this ark because she can no longer hide him. And she's gonna place Moses into this ark, this small little ark for one little infant and put it out into the Nile, into the reeds, not into the main stream of it, but into the reeds where it might sit. And when she does that, she's gonna trust that God will do something. She doesn't know what. She's gonna trust God will bring about some salvation. So she builds the ark, this single baby ark, Trust God that he will somehow rescue Moses. And she sets that ark among the reeds on the bank of the Nile. And God does save him. He saves him because Pharaoh's daughter is there, bathing in the Nile, in the reeds, and finds this baby in an ark. And wants to adopt him. Wants to bring him in and raise him. And not only that, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful miracle, but she knows that in the beginning, an infant, she can't feed him. She didn't give birth to it. So she needs someone to feed this infant. And it just so happens that Moses' sister is there. And Moses' sister suggests Moses' mom as the one who can care for this young child. And Pharaoh hires, pays Moses' mom to raise Moses in his younger years. And so what we see, though, in Moses... See, Moses was a real person, real story, real things happen. But we also see Moses as a type. See, Moses becomes this type in the Bible. He's, a, he's someone who is destined to lead God's people to fulfill their purpose. And he is a boy, at this point in the story, he's a boy that's hunted by evil. Someone who's going to lead God's people for their purpose and to their purpose. But at this point, he's a young boy who is hunted by evil. And not every detail of Moses' life will align with everyone or who might come after as it in that type. But we are, rem- we are to remember Moses, and Matthew is trying to get us to think about Moses a little bit in this passage. We're to remember Moses and God's faithfulness to save him as we look at today's scripture and we see another boy, Jesus the Messiah, who's also being hunted by evil. And that's a hyperlink. We're supposed to, it's supposed to draw us back to the story of Moses. And there's so much more. Uh, if we had four hours, I could go into it that connect all these dots. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. But uh, we need to move on. <laughs> and today, I'm going to work under three headings. Three headings, just to kind of give us an outline. The first one, you can write this down if you take notes, is we're going to look at a king 
on the run. A king on the run. So it begins with another dream, right? Matthew, Matthew chapter two, verse 13. It begins with another dream, and we have Joseph, Jesus' father. He's told to flee in order to save the boy, Messiah, Jesus. And interesting, where is he told to go? Egypt. Egypt, the place that God brought his people out of before, right? He's told to go to Egypt. And Egypt, along with Babylon in the Bible, are often used to represent a place of rebellion and evil. Egypt and and Babylon. It's a place that is opposed to God. And so you'll see that in some of the prophetics and throughout the Bible. Egypt and Babylon are not good places, you, you usually have to go down to Egypt or down to Babylon, even though Babylon's up, right? <laughs> you, you go up to good things, you go down to bad things. And you usually have to go down to those places. But here in Matthew, we see that the script is flipped. The script is flipped because Egypt is going to be a place of safety for the Messiah. A place where he can run to and be safe and cared for, while God's promised land and the leaders of his people, they're now the corrupt ones. They've become the evil Pharaoh in the, in the Moses story. It's flipped, and, and that's to draw us into the story and go, wait, this, this is like the Moses story, but it's not the Moses story. It's different. And again, we see in this particular section, a king on the run, we see that Joseph absolutely trusts and absolutely has faith in his God. He's a guy who we don't know a whole lot about, Joseph, uh, Jesus' father. Most scholars assume that he probably died sometime before Jesus hit 30 years old and began his ministry. Uh, But what we do know about Joseph stands, and what it stands is that he was a righteous man who was willing to obey God even when God's commands might jeopardize his own reputation. We saw that in the taking of Mary, even though she was pregnant and their marriage was not yet complete or consummated. We also see his willingness to obey and trust God because he will uproot his family. Talk about about not a Christmas story you typically hear, right? The Magi just left. You know that beautiful scene we have on Christmas? The Magi and the gifts. The Mag- we don't know how many days they spent in town, but whenever they left, jo- Joseph gets this dream and says, run, run. That should be how we end Christmas as everyone like runs out of the building or something. Right? Run, <laughs> Herod's coming. <laughs> yeah, not the Christmas story you typically hear, but Joseph is obedient and faithful to get out of Dodge and to save this Messiah child even if it means uprooting his family. So what does Matthew say in this first section will be fulfilled? Well, he says that Jesus needed to flee to Egypt in order to be called out of Egypt. He needed to flee to Egypt in order to be called out of Egypt. And he quotes a scripture from the book of Hosea, chapter 11. And that's another rabbit hole we could go down on the story of Hosea and the beautiful picture of redemption throughout that book. Uh, and how it relates to God and us. But when Hosea recorded this, it was God who was recalling uh, in in Hosea 11, and Hosea's writing down this this vision or this this prophecy from the Lord. Uh, And in that prophecy, God is recalling the Exodus event. 
That's what God's calling in Hosea 11. God took the nation of Israel and delivered them from their enslavement to Egypt or to the Egyptians. And when he called them out and through their deliverance, they would be his people. Come to the wilderness and worship me. Be my people. And he would be their God and king. Uh, In other words, Matthew sees Jesus in this scripture that we're reading in Matthew 2. He sees Jesus as standing in the place of God's people. He's going to go down to Egypt through Joseph's trusting and obeying. He's going to go down to Egypt and then God is going to bring him out like another Exodus story in order to bring him out to fulfill God's purpose and God's plan for him. As in the Exodus story, it will be in the Jesus story. Like Jesus in Egypt, who would be called out of the land of Egypt in order to fulfill God's redemptive plan for his people back in Judea, as he had done before, so it was for the people of Israel before. But Jesus is going to do it and become the complete and fulfillment of what once took place before with the people of Israel. And so in in that, Jesus is filling it with new meaning. He's completing it. He's bringing it to a close, what began with the Exodus. Even in times of great adversity and uncertainty, we know how this story goes. God is faithful to bring his people out. And God is faithful to defeat evil. Amen. Now that brings us to point number two, which is a king on a rampage. And this is from verse 16 through 18. Verse 16 through 18, a king on a rampage. We had a king on the rung, the young, young Messiah King Jesus. And now we have a king on a rampage. And oh, oh Herod. <laughs> Herod the Great is how he's known in history. Herod, when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, he flies into a rage flies into a rage and he gives orders to massacre all of the boys in and around Bethlehem who are two years old and younger. Now history tells us that Herod the Great was a very, very treacherous man. He was treacherous and he was evil. Herod the Great, his political career was littered with bodies, littered with the bodies of those he distrusted those he didn't like, or those who who he felt like were in the way of power, of him remaining in power. He murdered some of his sons. Herod murdered one of his wife's wife. And he he murdered countless others under his rule. Uh, we're told, in fact, in fact one of the, one of the, the some scholars doubt the, the historicity of this story because they're like, well, we don't read anywhere that 20, you know, 20 or so young infants were killed. And other scholars will retort and say, he killed so many people, that, that story wouldn't even show up in the news. That wouldn't even show up. He was so treacherous and evil. We're told that he was very paranoid in history. Uh, he, he always believed that someone was out to get him. Um, and that was probably rooted in the fact that he had his own lust for power. And so he projected that onto everyone around him, that they were out to get his power. And so as we saw last week, when the Magi come into town, these kingmakers from the east, and they say, hey, where's that new king of the Jews in town? Herod, the king of the Jews, is like, wait a sec. 
Someone's vying for my power. Someone's trying to dethrone me. And you might ask, well, why was he called Herod the Great then? Doesn't sound like a very good guy. Well, he was great not for his character or his righteousness, but because he was a builder. He built a lot of things, a lot of grand things. And you know, the one thing about all those things that he built, all those things that made him great, is that they lie in ruins today. They're not around. And his reputation is shot too. We know who he was because history recorded it. He's duped by the Magi, so he flies into a rage and he orders the killing of all the boys under, in and around Bethlehem under two. And, and I kind of mentioned this already, but Bethlehem was a small village. It was a really small village, maybe 500 to 2,000 people. And so most scholars estimate that, that those boys who were killed were somewhere between 10 and 20. 10 and 20 young, young boys who were killed as a result of his murderous rage. Innocent young boys who were caught in Herod's evil rampage. Something else that we see, though, is that even at the youngest of ages, Jesus is hated and despised. How many two-year-olds have to carry that weight? At the youngest of age, Jesus is hated. and He's not like your other two-year-olds who get to grow up in a simple life in the land of Judea. He's hunted. His family has to uproot and run, flee to Egypt. And why? Why is that the case? Well, it's because evil always opposes the word and the work of God. Evil always opposes the word and the work of God. Always. Um, I remember... I came across uh, Pastor John Piper. He's a, he's a pastor that I enjoy listening to, uh, a lot of his stuff. Uh, he was talking about the parable that, that Jesus uh, taught about the different soils and how the word of the Lord is like seed that comes onto soils and how uh, they receive the word of the Lord differently, the word of God differently, right? And, and I, he said something that I'll never forget. He said, uh, he was talking about the soil uh, in that parable where the birds of the air are out there and they swoop in to steal the seed, right? To snatch it and to take it and run off with it. And he, and he said, he asked the question, do you know who has perfect attendance at church? And the answer was Satan and his minions, Satan and his minions have perfect attendance at church. Why? Because at church, the word of God is preached. The seed is sown and the birds are waiting. They're waiting and circling to snatch that seed up and to take it away from the believer so that it cannot be rooted. Where the seed of God's word is sown, the enemy is always actively working to destroy it. I can tell you, I've been around church long enough, that in the pews and seats of a church, many people are drawn here or there in distraction as the word of God is being faithfully taught. Many are drawn to criticism ah, or to preference based upon desire. I don't like that. I didn't like the way this went. The word of God is being sown, and why are their minds drawn other way? Because there is a force at work within ourselves and outside of ourselves that is looking to snatch and steal and destroy the work of God and his word. Even right now, 
The birds circle overhead, ready to steal the word of God from your heart. And if that is true, how much more for the birth of the word made flesh, Jesus? How much more would the presence of evil be there to try to thwart and destroy the work of God in Christ? The evil one will always find willing partners in humanity who will faithfully help to destroy God's work. That is the sad reality. The enemy can always find a willing partner among humans to destroy God's word and his work. And this isn't actually a new concept. It actually comes to us from Genesis chapter three, verse 15, all the way at the beginning of the Bible. And that's where this curse is pronounced on the serpent for deceiving the man and the woman to eat of the fruit and disobey God. What's the curse that was pronounced on the serpent all the way at the beginning of the Bible? The curse was that, he will, that God will put hostility between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's offspring and the woman's seed or offspring. And that the woman's seed or offspring will crush the head of the serpent but not before the serpent is able to strike the heel of the woman's seed. You see, the Bible introduces, and a lot of people believe that this is that first messianic declaration all the way back in Genesis, talking about the Messiah. The seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he would be the serpent head crusher, even though the serpent does strike his heel. We see that on the cross where he goes to die for man's sins but in the end is able to overcome evil and crush Satan's head. The Old Testament is a series of events where we see that those who act in the image of the serpent try to destroy God's work and word over and over again. Just read your Old Testament. Be a good Bible student. Go to your Old Testament and see. You'll be able to begin to pick out, oh, he's acting like the serpent. He's trying to destroy God's word and work over and over again. And throughout the Old Testament, you'll also see that there are faithful ones who are imperfect because they're human, but they're faithful. They're faithful to act in accordance with God and his word. And you can track them throughout the whole Old Testament and they become to us this type of a faithful one who will obey God and accomplish his purposes. And who fulfills that type ultimately? Anyone know his name? Jesus, right? The capital F, faithful, capital O, one. Jesus. He is the faithful one who perfectly fulfills all of those who walk in the the image of God to advance the work and word of of God. Now I want you to uh, take a moment and just listen to this, this passage here before we move to our last point in the sermon. There's a passage that comes out of Revelation. And Revelation, I know, ooh, scary. <laughs> Should we be reading that on Sunday morning? Yes. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 12. And I want you to listen because this As I understand it, and many, many who interpret Revelation, though there is debate on Revelation, we won't get into that, but as I understand Revelation, Revelation 12 is a retelling from a different perspective of the very event we're looking at in Matthew 2. 
Revelation 12 is as if the curtain between the physical realm and the spiritual realm was ripped back and you could see what was going on in the spiritual realm at the same time as the story in Matthew 2 was happening. And so just listen what, what, what John the Revelator sees in Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and its heads were crowned with seven crowns. Its tail swept swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. But she gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. As, as if, if, and I understand the imagery in it, you're like, that doesn't match up perfectly. That's kind of weird. Like, what was, what was he on that day? <laughs> A little extra medication. Um, no, this is as if the spiritual realm is, is, is ripped back and you see that there is a woman who's in labor giving birth and there is a fiery dragon and a dragon in, in the sense of how they would understand a dragon is not how we think of a dragon. A dragon is a serpent-like creature. You could say it another way. A serpent is standing in front of the woman waiting for her to give birth so that he can kill the child. That serpent, as I said, will always find a willing human to partner with him in destroying God's work and word. How did the serpent do that? Through Herod. Attempted to kill the Christ child at his birth or as a child. What will people do to get rid of Jesus? If they can't outright get rid of Jesus, they will protest his rule. They will protest his rule by destroying whatever is associated with him. And you all know we can't escape the reality of God's rule and kingdom but we can see a whole lot of people in this world who are doing everything they can to protest his rule by destroying anything that is associated with him. Do we see that? They might reject the identity that God has given them, the identity that he declared very good, and they might instead take on a twisted and distorted self-appointed identity. And that is a rejection of God's word an attempt to destroy God's work. They might destroy their own offspring to protest his divine order. Destroy their offspring to escape the work of God that is going on in his divine, miraculous knitting within their own womb of an image-bearing child within them. And they might say, not in me. My body, my choice. They might say that the only gospel that's worth following or believing is a gospel of inclusion and tolerance. Or that a holy God of justice would never, ever judge people 
on the basis of their acceptance or rejection of him in this life. They might believe that they have no need for the church or for fellowship or for the body of Christ, that they are a lone ranger. All of that is an attempt to destroy the work and the word of God. It is rebellion. It is faithlessness. We humans will go to great lengths to get rid of Jesus. My final point today out of Matthew chapter two is that we then find in the last few verses a king in obscurity. And I'll wrap this up as quick as I can so we can get on to our festivities. But a king in obscurity, we have Herod dies. And an angel comes to to Joseph and says, it's time to go back. It's time to get up out of Egypt and go back to the land of Israel. And so he takes the child and Mary and they head back to the land. But when he gets there, he hears that Archelaus is ruling and this is Herod's son and he's 10 times worse than the dad, right? Uh, Crazy side story here. Herod the Great is about to die. Herod the Great is not loved by anyone. They all hate him. And he's so diseased. I mean, some of the descriptions are pretty putrid to the point that they say his breath is so bad because of his disease that everyone stays really clear of him and won't come near him. He knows that he has such a bad reputation and that no one loves him that not a single soul will mourn his passing. And so he hatches a plan that he will take captive the nobles in Judea and he will imprison them. As he's approaching death's door, he knows it's coming, he takes them and imprisons them. And he gives command to his guard and to his son that upon his death they're to kill all of them so that at least on the day of his death, Tears will be shed in the land. And they do it. They follow his orders. So Joseph's good in saying, hey, I'm gonna steer clear of this guy too. And instead, he steers up and goes to another place that's outside of Archelaus's rule and in another Herod's rule called Antipatus. And in his, way, in his rule, in his uh, land, uh, he'll, have, he'll find relative peace there. He'll find relative peace. And so he goes to a place called Nazareth. And we're told by Matthew that this is in order to fulfill a prophecy, right? That was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Remember, this is, this is Matthew. He's, he's trying to bolster the, the credentials of Jesus as the Messiah. He will be called a Nazarene. There's one problem, obviously, with this particular uh, prophecy is that there is no prophecy in the Bible that says that. <laughs> And so that has caused some people to go, what, wait, what, what is that all about? It doesn't say that he'll be a Nazarene anywhere. In fact, Nazareth is not mentioned in the Bible or the Old Testament. It, it's, it's obscure, let's say. There are three possibilities. And I'll just cover them really quickly. One is that Nazareth is a play on words. In Hebrew, they don't have vowels. And so they use consonants. And oftentimes they'll reorder the consonants so that it's similar but not exactly the same in order to say something through that word. Nazareth, if you reorder the consonants, actually would say the branch. And the branch is a messianic theme throughout the Old Testament. And so what he's saying is the prophet said that the branch would come. And so he's using Nazareth as a way to kind of get to that point through a a, a play on words. 
Now, there's problems with that, and not everyone trusts that one. Another one is that maybe it was an unwritten prophecy that everyone just knew. You know, maybe lots of things were talked about, but not all of it was written down. The third one, though, and the one that that I tend to to buy into myself, is that Nazareth, we know from, from John 1, chapter 46, that when Nathanael is called to follow Jesus by Philip, what, is, what does Nathaniel say? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, this is the kind of talk that you get from a kid who, who lived in Bakersfield. <laughs> like, the armpit of California, right? And if the armpit had another place in it that was even worse than the armpit, that would be Bakersfield or, or Arvin, which is a little further out, but you guys, you don't care about that. But Bakersfield, everyone in California knows Bakersfield is the armpit of California. Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Talking about Jesus, as he's called to follow him. And Philip says, come and see. (laughs) Come and see, come and meet him, the one who comes out of Nazareth. It could be that Nazareth in this day and time was an expression, an expression or idiom that everyone knew. And it basically meant despised, good-for-nothing, podunk Bakersfield. That's what it meant back then. (laughs) They knew. And if that's the case, then a lot of prophets talked about how the Messiah would be despised. In a lot of places, they talked about his origin being not uh, not grand in the sense of a king coming on the scene with his people. I want to close today by reading one of those so that we can tie not only this scripture, but we can tie into Christ's work for us on the cross If Nazareth is the place of the despised, the good for nothing, the podunk, then listen to what Isaiah 53 said 700 years before Jesus' birth. Isaiah 53, talking about the Messiah who's to come. They don't know when. But when he comes, here's what you're to look for. Here's who he will be. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have any impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. Bakersfield, really? He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains and we in turn regarded him as stricken that he was struck down by God and afflicted but he was pierced because of our rebellion he was crushed because of our iniquities punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds we all went astray like sheep we all have turned to our own way And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Yes, he was despised and rejected. A man from Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. And yet, 
He was despised and rejected so that we could be accepted. We're forgiven because he was rejected. We are accepted because he was condemned in our place. And so the young Messiah grows a little bit more. And we're gonna encounter a bit of a gap in his life coming up before his ministry starts. But you can tell that even from a young age, people wanted to rid their life of Jesus. And yet he bore our iniquities and our sin and our rejection so that we could experience acceptance and salvation in God. Will you pray with me? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. Father, thank you so much for this morning and for your word. We do pray that the word would fall in our hearts upon ground that readily receives the word and that it goes down, takes root and produces fruit. I pray that we would all meditate and consider and think on this, our Messiah who was stricken and rejected for our sins, for our rebellion. He took on our pain. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be strangely warmed by this truth and that we might turn in faith to you.